Okay, well, look, I'm Bill Gross. We're going to launch this. I'm coming to remote Las Vegas, Nevada, in a hotel at the Mandalay Bay. I'm at a national uh, the idea to focus on probate years ago. And uh, as a result of that, we put this program on weekly, probate weekly. Agents learn how to build more. There's no sound. Yeah. No. We can't hear you. Um, okay. Now Just stay yeah, right there, Bill. You're coming through now. Okay. April, how are you doing? Glad to have you here today. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Sorry about the audio issues because I'm uh, trying to figure out you know what what you're saying but hopefully we'll we'll be able to push through here we go i thought it'd be fun to do it remotely but i forgot that wi-fi often doesn't comply so april give us some background where are you from originally and how did you get into the practice of law so i and hello everyone i am originally from los angeles so grew up in los angeles uh was going to be a cpa my whole life ended up at the end of college taking a law class and loved it so decided to you know what the heck go to law school so went to law school um became a tax attorney so i'm licensed in california and new york practiced for 24 years when I first got out of law school, I went into mergers and acquisitions, so a lot of business transactions. And after several business transactions, I realized that all these, you know, fantastic business people had one thing in common, which is they didn't have estate plans in place. And so if we were closing deals and they were out of the country or living some, you know, going somewhere fabulous and couldn't close a deal, they had no powers of attorney no background documents to to get that deal through so started doing estate planning and then spent most of my 24 year uh, as an attorney career doing uh trust complex trust drafting and then a lot of trust and probate litigation so currently in san diego uh practiced for about 24 years and then transitioned to in-house. So currently coming to you from EP Wealth Advisors. So now I sit and just give, you know, consultation information to clients about the good, bad, and ugly as to estate planning. Some uh, wealth companies refer out your work. Your firm is a little bigger than most, has you in-house to do that work. What's the difference and why do you obviously look, prefer being in-house counsel than being outside? So, well, you're right. So some some firms don't have estate attorneys at all. We growing definitely have lots of attorneys in our staff and are always growing. What we love to do in-house is just consult with the client and have answers for quick questions. 
right? So our job is to just look at clients' overall financial health. Part of that being, you know, where they are with their estate plan so that we can advise and, and tell them certain ways that they might be able to structure their estate so that they are not trapped in probate court, for example, or, you know, overpaying taxes. So we like to do this consultation in-house so that we know the clients. Um, but then any drafting or actual attorney client privilege work is outside of our firm. So we don't actually draft. We just get to consult. And then they have the assurance of a third party out there, an attorney, to actually direct and make changes. So that way it's just another layer of protection. But we love doing this job because it's just a lot of consults, a lot of, lot of talking all day long. <laughs> you use the terminology trapped in probate court. Now, you don't actually physically get locked in the building. But describe a little bit what you're trying to avoid and what you're trying to do for your client uh, through your legal advice. Yes. So what we're trying to do is, especially in California, is help clients align their estate with a trust or with their assets so that they're not subject to court oversight, which we all know is maybe as probate, right? So if someone dies or if they're incapacitated, then the court system if they don't have a trust in place already, the court system, it takes over and has the decision-making powers. If a person passes away, the decision-making power is made in the probate court. And if a person is incapacitated, the decision-making is made in the conservatorship court. And those processes are long and have tedious requirements. For probate, the average probate is one to two years. Uh, and there are statutory fees, right? So it can be quite expensive quite quickly, especially if there's real estate or any you know number of assets. But in California, real estate being the big ticket item that sometimes trips people up and gets them in the probate court. And then I just recently wrote an article about you know Britney Spears in the conservatorship court, right? So just trying to help people understand what it means, what probate court means, why having a will is really just a ticket into the probate court, right? Trying to undo a lot of the things that we see in the movies where people, you know, expect this elaborate reading of the will and there's no court ever involved or very minimally. So just trying to dispel the rumors and answer quick questions for people so that they can get ahead of the game. I tell people that probate court is like letting the state of California make your decisions for you. It's kind of like the DMV making your most important life-changing decisions, the service just isn't quite that good. Right, I mean, no despair, nothing bad to any of the learned judges out there, of course, in the California Superior Courts, but it is a very, you know, large number of people at every court hearing. So many people also have this idea that if their will is probated or if their estate is in the jurisdiction of probate court, that they're going to have a learned judge and they're going to have this really long discussion with the judge and while there is a learned judge involved the hearing court you know time that you're allotted is usually minutes you might talk to a judge for a minute or two because each day's calendar might have 30 or 40 people for a one and a half hour two hour calendar so you know there's this misnomer that you you're going to have this learned discussion of course 
the judges and you know probate examiners and all the people in the court are reading documents but there's such a volume that you can't expect this long in detailed conversation and i think you know for my practice at least in the courts one of the favorite things that we would get accomplished at every court hearing is a continuance right is we'll get you back on calendar in six weeks right and i was laughed at once when i was a newbie attorney when i came to court because the judge said oh we'll give you a continuance and i said two weeks and everyone laughed ha 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 two weeks that's crazy you should get six or eight like that's the standard answer right so it's just kicking the can constantly and this is part of why you know um, pre-covid uh, probates would last one to two years with covid it just made a complete catastrophe and we're you know courts are back on track but still a long, long, long process, plus it's costly. Now, in your particular case, you advise clients. Do you also represent them if they need to go to court for litigation on a trust? Or are you going to help refer them to some other attorney and coordinate with the other attorney? Or how do you handle that? Currently, we will refer out to litigation counsel, so we don't do any representation of clients. Where I am currently in my you know, former career, most of what I did, 90%, was uh, trust litigation, mostly representing trustees with disgruntled beneficiaries and, and sometimes just family battles over, over assets. Um, so, but not anymore. We refer out to all of, in, the, in each geography, because our company is nationwide, in each geography, we have uh, counsel that we refer to, long list of counsel. So I run a, a couple of Facebook groups and I get asked a lot of questions. I always have to say first, I'm not an attorney. I can't give legal advice. You are an attorney. Now, you're not going to give legal advice on this call because you're not representing anybody, but you can share with us your legal knowledge. Um, I get asked a lot. Somebody passed. They, uh, an heir believes they're entitled to something, but they haven't been notified. What are the requirements when there's a trust to notify people who might otherwise expect to be heirs, children? or only surviving grandchildren and such, should they expect to be notified? Should they expect to see a copy of the trust? If they're not getting anything, should they expect to get verification writing that they've been written out of the trust? What's the process in a trust for heirs who may not be the executor, but want to know why they're not getting any kind of information or feedback? Yeah, so under California, so I can speak to California. Under California, there are notification rules. If there is a trust, if there is a certain triggering events in a trust so someone passes away there are notification requirements for all of the named beneficiaries and then known heirs so when there is a death there should be notification if a person thinks that they haven't been notified first step is to contact who they think is in charge of that trust to request notice and and a copy of the trust so notification requirements go out. There are certain things that the trustee in this case has to let the certain individuals that can be persons or charities and known heirs that there's been a death and give them the option to request a copy of the trust or give a copy of the full trust. Not just a few, not just the screenshot of one paragraph, the entire terms of the trust. And that is defined under California probate code. So they can request a copy. If they don't get a copy, then they can file something with the court to, to start a probate or to try to force the, in this case, maybe a trustee to do their job, right? That will begin a bit of an arduous pro process to force the trustee to do their job or maybe ultimately get that trustee removed. 
um, but they can request a copy. They're entitled to a copy. Um, and that's where they start kind of this going down the rabbit hole of trying to get some help and get the right notification. Whether or not they're, they've been written out, if they were considered an heir, they're entitled to notice and a copy of the trust, and then they could figure out for themselves if they were written out, for example, but they're not supposed to know that otherwise. I did. So that's a that's a very common case. You know, a husband gets remarried and the, the new wife doesn't want to involve the, the kids and she's got the trust in her hands and she's not giving a copy out. And so it sounds like the only recourse is really to get with a, a, a trust litigation attorney, because that sounds like litigation, or at least the beginning phase of litigation, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's it sometimes can be the beginning phase. Sometimes in my practice, what I used to see is maybe two areas. One, sometimes the trustee just doesn't know the rules and they don't know that who they should be giving copies of the document to. And so that's a good case scenario. Person can request notice. And maybe that trustee goes to an attorney and realizes like, oh, I'm not doing it right. The other one is going to an attorney and realizing maybe that trustee isn't doing their job on purpose, if you will, like, uh, you know, fraudulently or whatnot. And so if that's the case, then it does kind of look like you're starting that litigation process. Most cases settle. Most cases don't go to trial. So from the start to finish, there might be several months of a little bit of a battle of letters or maybe it's conferences, but most cases tend to settle. Um, it's just like some of the big ticket ones that don't, right? Um, and I think someone put in the comments, there's Anne Hesh, right, happening right now where there's a battle of who's going to be in control. Um, so we see that a lot with big stars as a side, as a side comment. You know, Britney Spears, yep. people that have money tend to draw out the out the people that are hoping that they could maybe get something from that estate. And then, you know, that's in the case of maybe Anne Hesh or other people that are hoping to be beneficiaries. Britney Spears is different. She was, you know, deemed incapacitated, but still working. Right. And we, there is some I had concerns. The article I wrote how that conservatorship even started. Um, yeah. Questionable with her father in particular, right? So that's kind of the other side of things that those are people that might be taken advantage of while they're living. But for the most part, if you are not getting information, that's always like the start of the red flags to know, you know, you gotta watch yourself and this could lead to hiring a litigation attorney or a probate attorney, but won't necessarily always go to trial. It's not like a matter somebody would bring to you, but if somebody was in this situation, they're an heir, the other party is ignoring them, the whoever is acting as the um, administrator of the trust. Um, what would it cost typically to get an attorney to at least start that process and write those letters? I imagine you do that at your old firm. Uh, what, do you have an idea of what somebody should expect on a typical case? Yeah, so if, if all they're looking for is just that initial, like they need a letter, and sometimes, unfortunately, a letter coming on with letterhead from an attorney might Kind of give a kickstart to that trustee doing the right thing and giving copies of the trust you know sometimes it could be a few hundred dollars so i don't think that first initial kick is an expensive letter um if if looking at the facts and circumstances how long time has passed between the person that died and and like the day that that potential client walks in the attorney's office the longer the time the maybe the higher that cost might be because there's some investigation to try to figure out what happened to the assets um 
if it's just right away and people just don't know their rights, then maybe it's a few hundred dollars. But I had some where this kind of dodging of giving information was going on for years. And in that case, that might reach a few thousand dollars because now we're trying to trace assets as we write that first scary letter. Right. Um, in a probate case, as, as I understand it, if you're filing a petition to petition a will, at some point, a will is filed with the court and made public. If there is no will, they're saying there's no will, then then at some point there's the court, there, there's a, a code that determines who gets what. But if there's a will, is it true that it would always be filed in a probate if they're trying to probate a will, that it would be made public? Yeah, so that's the other good and bad news about probate, right? On the one hand, if, if a will, when a person dies, I'll backtrack. When a person dies in California, California law defaults to the will should be lodged with the court, whether or not a probate ever happens. And that just means a will should be held there for safekeeping. It's not public record. So then if there has to be a probate, then the terms of the will are going to be public record. So on the one hand, that's great for all the people who think they could be heirs um, and haven't received notice under court requirements, they could at least see the will for themselves. On the flip side, for the decedent or for famous people, everyone gets to read their will. So there's no real privacy, except for a very limited you know, set of circumstances. Can things be redacted or filed under secrecy rules? But, but for the most part, once a probate is started, the will is fair game, the entire, all the terms. And so that, you know, I guess flushes out kind of a shine of light on the truth of it all, right? So that can be helpful. If they're petitioning a will, then eventually the terms will come out. Maybe not initially, but at some point you can't petition in a will without a will. You can petition intestate without a will, but it was. And once that petition for probate starts, there are notice requirements that start immediately where again, uh, all the known beneficiaries under that will and all the heirs under the state law have to receive notice of that probate hearing and people can come or contest or show up or do whatever they wanna do once they get that notice. So once a probate starts, sometimes beneficiaries like a probate because everything's gonna happen in open court and and they're going to receive notice and if they don't get the right notice there can be what they call a defect and then people can you know file objections and there's just a whole like a slow moving train that happens once that probate starts to give people ample opportunity to get more facts or ask questions and figure things out it seems to me as observed the one thing courts can happens is everybody gets the minimum notice yeah. At every single at every stage of the game, they get the required by we will continue. Yeah, that's right. Like one of the good things for probate is that everyone gets some level of notification. Whether or not people understand or actually quite frankly read all those notices, because then it starts a mountain of paperwork. Uh, whether or not they actually read it. At least they've got it so they can you know not be completely in the dark because i think one of the biggest instigators of problems in estates in general is just a lack of information right lack of information causes problems because people start to wonder what's happening and the minute people start wondering everyone gets litigious uh, the other thing with probate is also starts 
uh, with certain publications, this time frame for notice also, you know, kind of deemed notice to creditors. So for people that are not sure if they're taking over an estate and they have no idea who's owed what, kind of starts the clock ticking for people to come out of the woodwork too to say, hey, you know, Johnny owed me some money and, and let's see if we should get it paid. So there's kind of a, a day of reckoning where everyone can come together and say, okay, here's what we think has happened. Here's what we think all the assets are. Here's who we think the beneficiaries are. Here's who we think we owe money to, including Uncle Sam and the Franchise Tax Board. And then we'll figure out and divvy it up later. So there is kind of this notice to not only all the people we've talked about, but also people in the woodwork that think they're owed money. It can start that to cut it off, right? Start cutting it off too. I lost your audio for a second. So I'm sure you're asking a good question, but. <laughs> yeah, if only I knew sign language, that's right. Um, if it's still cut off, I can look into the, the chatter and see, um, oh, what here's one. What happens in the case of a trustee or executor and a daughter is written the will, total control of what gets. Interesting, what did I do before I went in house and what got me so bogged down by the system that I was like, I am done going to court, undue influence and financial elder abuse. These are huge issues in California, so much so that sometimes, unless it's like super egregious, Police can't even get involved anymore because it's just so rampant. Uh, for cases where you think there's undue influence or forged will, uh, financial elder abuse, my big ticket that paid the bills for a couple of years was uh, caregiver abuse. They actually changed the law so that caregivers can't marry the person they were giving care to as a means of kind of skirting this caregivers can't take all the funds away from people they're caring for. Those are different kinds of cases, and you can file those in the court as an you can object to a will. So I did one up in San Francisco in Marin County. I did a case where there was a will uh, that we thought was not the true terms of the will and actually got that thrown out. So even if somebody puts forth a will, but you think or a trust for that matter, and you think that it was done by somebody who had financial done some financial abuse or caregiver abuse or just had some undue influence you can you can bring that to the court you can file an objection kind of the good and bad news about probate also is there's a lot of forms so they can look a little scary they every court has people that can help you fill them out and they most of them have checked the box so you could check as many boxes as you think apply and you could say that there was undue influence and many people think undue influence being like something scary Right. You would think of like the scary movies where there's guns or knives involved and duress and making them sign. But the actual truth is most undue influence and caregiver abuse is from a sweet talker. They have a great charismatic story. You know, I had one with a caregiver in um, North County, uh, San Diego, where it was just a sweet woman, a single mom. She just, you know, needed clothes from Nordstrom and trips and all kinds of stuff. And the person she was caring for paid for it all because she was just such a sweet caregiver. And yes, we, you know, caregiving is a very hard job, but 
it's a job and they should not be, you know, taking funds from the person they're caring for. So that's what happens if there is something where you think there's a document drafted by somebody who had undue influence. And this area is exploding in crime okay. and it, 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 as a population gets older, I've noticed now more caregivers are getting trusts on, like the care, the, the fraudulent caregiver industry is learning about trust versus probate court. I don't know if that makes sense, but I just yeah. noticed more and more, they come to me, they signed a trust because it's probably harder to unravel than a probate, I would think. Yeah, and I think trust doesn't have, trust is very, you know, instantaneous. For all the people in California that own real estate, you're, you should have a trust because then real estate and transfers are instantaneous. You're not trapped in court. But all the fraudulent fellows know that too, that trusts are instantaneous. If you come to the bank with a, a certification of trust, it's sometimes easier than if trying to knock your way through a probate proceeding and getting a court order or with a court right. order in probates called letters. Um, but I will say banks and financial institutions, there is, you know, now I'm sitting inside of, you know, investment or financial world, a lot of training on, on abuse and financial and elder abuse because it is so rampant and it's just unfortunate, but that's where we're at. The clues also seem to be that the initial transfer with the bad caregiver is always a quick claim deed, not an insured grant deed. And so they, they find somebody who will give them some cash and they'll sell the property. And now you're stuck in some litigation and they got some money out of it. So just for those of you, like me as a real estate agent, when we look at the records, when you see that first from the decedent to the caregiver slash girlfriend slash new wife, and it's a quick claim deed, just know that probably is a problem and um, uh, it, they're difficult to unravel, so. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You see a lot of quick succession. I used to, in my cases, when we had a lot of real estate transfers, we would see a lot of quick succession of quick claim deeds, because, just as you're saying, because there's no, because the criminals know how to, you know, get what they want without making promise. And that's just the really unfortunate part of it all is they're, they're right there up there knowing all the legal, all the legal jargon. Yeah, there's criminals who come to probate weekly, every week, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure I'm treating some of them back to, but uh, uh, they get smarter too. Let's, let's talk a little bit about on the estate planning side. I know my son-in-law has a similar position to you in that he does tax. He runs a tax for a wealth management company. So he's doing the client's income and salary role. But you must see clients their prospective plans to your firm. The manager brings them some advice. You know they need to get a plan put together and then you don't hear from them again for six or eight months. What is it? Would you, what would you say to them if you could? If they're not your client, you have a chance to put on the video to to the population at large. What would you say to people as to why they should take the time and money, right, in advance to spend? Why should they do that when everybody's busy? It seems like it's so far off. It's good advice, but I'll get to it later. Why should people take the time and get an estate plan done when they don't need it right away? It is the most loving thing you can do for yourself, for your assets, for your family is just get an estate plan in place because no one knows when they're going to need it. Right. And of course, everyone says later, later, later. But as someone who practiced and had to run into hospitals at the last second or deal with people in hospice and distraught family members, distraught children, financial institutions at their last wits end trying to get money transferred and nobody has power 
that's what you're trying to avoid. You're trying to avoid the panic of a last minute plan. And that's why you should do it now. Just get it over with. Also, it's always, you know, if, if you have something lingering on your to-do list, it's always in your mind. It's always on the back of your mind. It's better to just do it. And when I was practicing, I say, set up your estate plan when you're healthy so that all these conversations are not like super emotional. If, if doing an estate plan for a healthy person versus someone with terminal cancer is a different ballpark, right? So set it up with your wishes while everyone's healthy, get it done, and then just forget about it. And then it just kicks into action if you need it and avoid the trauma of you know so many things that i've seen in my practice of people on their deathbed trying to sign things or being shut out of the bank when they need the cash to pay for a surgery i mean just egregious things so if you do it now you just don't have to worry about that and you just get to save especially your children or family members the distress of trying to figure out your wishes when you're not able to do that for yourself and being trapped in a situation one of my last cases was a person that had an unfortunate, just quick illness and died and left a complete mess of the estate, which cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to litigate and broke up the family. The children are never gonna speak again. And had they actually known dad's wishes, might've cost a few thousand dollars and they might've saved you know, all the future holidays for everyone, right? So it's about, it's about the future and the kids really. Yeah, I see. I see that in court uh, regularly. Barbara asks, she says, "What about Lady Mary deeds that you don't know about?" To after the, I think she means uh, Lady Bird deeds are common in Texas. Do we don't have an equivalent here in California? I don't think of those. Do you know what she's referring to? Or, or um, uh, Barbara, I tried to unmute you. I don't know if you, where you went to. Yeah, let me see if I can search about Mary Bird. Mary, Mary deeds. Let's see. I know about, she says Lady Mary D, but I know this thing is a Lady Bird deed in Texas after Lady Bird Johnson, I believe. Uh, Barbara, are you in Texas or California? Where are you in? And if you want to unmute yourself and ask a question, uh, um, for the rest of you, we'd love to have you participate. Just raise uh, your hand in the Zoom or put a question with a cue in front of it, and then I'll unmute you and bring you in. I think these might be, if I. Oh, I'm... I meant Lady Bird. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's equivalent here is a revocable like transfer on death deed. Um, so you so it's it's sort of like a transfer on death, but you can take it back. So sometimes we call that like a poor man's trust, <laughs> right? Like everybody, everyone's trust. Um, they're good and bad. I sometimes I have seen them to cause issues with title later, uh, particularly sometimes with title insurance companies. Not that that's a good or bad thing. They're just not that prevalent. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of these types of deeds here in California because I think you can get a better job done with having a, a trust and then putting your house in the trust and dealing with the terms and the revocability of your decisions within your own trust later versus putting it on a title and having it recorded. Um, and you know, saying that some people, Prop 19, if you're if you're transferring property to and from your own trust. There's no property tax change, so that should not be a deterrent. I, I would prefer when I was a practicing attorney, that's how I always did it. I wasn't a huge fan of, of some of these kind of one-off change your mind deed types, you know, for later. That's just not something that I think is maybe the right path for most people. 
I thought I I see. avoid probate is um, to do that. I was going to put it my grandchildren's names and then, um, you know, my properties mm -hmm. desi designate. I've got property here in Florida, but I can also some in New York, upstate New York. So, but is that acceptable in New York State? I know we are. It's uh, prop, prop, you know, it is in Florida here. Yeah, I know New York has something similar. Um, but for that, when I had clients, and where do you live? You live, say that again. My residence, is, my, my my legal residence is Florida. Yeah, so typically, yeah. typically, obviously can't give legal advice, but typically I would, when I was in practice, I would set up a Florida trust. If I were a Florida attorney, like referring out Florida attorney, and then you can do either one-off deeds for the New York or you know, put terms in your trust for the property in New York, knowing that the title and the New York property needs to kind of stand alone so you're not having something called an ancillary probate up in New York. But I don't know the actual answer, like you know, what's better fit for you for New York. Um, so that would be the part that a New York attorney would need to tell you best practices for holding that property there. Because one thing is holding property, but like how you hold it now, versus how you transfer it, how you transfer ownership. You, know, you don't wanna cause any complications doing that because transferring property during life can invoke gift tax, right? And, and sometimes document transfer tax and other types of tax that I can't comment on, but uh, definitely transferring names can invoke you know, gift and generation skipping transfer taxes. So wanting to be mindful of that, even though we know the current estate tax, gift tax, generation skipping transfer tax for this year for the lifetime is up to 12 million and change per person. So it's, you got to be pretty high up there before you start too worried about it. But always am mindful about when you're transferring assets over of tripping yourself up for a tax you didn't think about. But you're allowed 10,000 a year, aren't you, in gift tax per person? Uh, 16,000 is the current annual gift tax exclusion. So 16,000 per person. So you could give out $16,000 increments. And then the lifetime exclusion for gifts that you trip up over that 16,000 in a given year. Lifetime is up to 12 million. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm not Trump. Um, that's, a good, I, that's a good problem to have. I, that's my goal is to be have a taxable estate. <laughs> but yeah. I want because if I did a, a did, do ladybird deeds, then uh, but how um, uh, contestable then could it end up being with other family members? Or is, you know, like um, because I mean, if you have a will and you're leaving, they you know, there's contesting sometimes. But if it's a uh, you know, trying to avoid that by just uh, having the deed, uh, you know, oh, right. That. Right. So you're right. So that kind of brings up a topic, which is which what thing controls title controls the following general category of assets, accounts, retirement accounts. So beneficiary designations uh, that will control under federal law. Real estate title will control for real estate uh, unless there is something in your will or trust that says otherwise or causes confusion then there can be some contest on the title of the deed, but you're right. Typically, 
the title of a piece of real estate will control over a will, for example. Okay, thank, thank you. That was what I, <laughs> trying to avoid probate and um, <laughs> complications uh, when the time comes. <laughs> that's right, yeah, I guess that's the one goal is everyone's trying to get to the same finish line with the least court action and cost possible. Yeah, thank you, Barbara, thank you so much. Winston, into the mix, uh, kind of a regular. Stevenson, are you? Lost you. Winston, push the ball. If you're looking, oh, Winston, let's see. Had his hand up. Only can. Here's Winston. I see. Oh, Winston has a nice like background with uh, some sort of lovely ocean where I wish I was because it's cold here. <laughs> yes. Now, now we're good. Thanks, Bill. Hey, I'm going to ask a question of April that I, I we talked about a few weeks ago, but I need clarification on this one, Bill. April, this is a California probate court situation. And we all know that when an administrator is granted limited authority, we have to deal with the probate referee. They're gonna do a drive-by appraisal, yada, yada, 90%. But if the administrator is given full authority, okay, I believe not, but I'm getting some pushback. We don't need to deal with the probate referee on a full authority situation, but I want clarification from you, please. On a probate referee, we always submitted um, kind of for a rubber stamp on the fair market value for real estate. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but you know, in in full authority cases, I haven't had to deal with that. But I'm dealing with the situation now with someone that that says we have to. I've dealt with it many times on, on limited authority, but not on full authority. And I'm being told we need to, and I'm thinking no. So, yeah. well, I. Oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something, Bill? Well, I was just going to say this is this is maybe an area that's not the law, where I regularly get a on certain things that are clearly not true, and I don't stress all, but I do want to encourage all of us to work with experts in their area. April is an expert in estate planning and and trust litigation. There are attorneys who aren't experts in probate or estate litigation. My experts, and they'll tell you. You do have to order the um, inventory report. You need to sell the real estate in California. I'm not saying as a legal, I'm saying as a business point of view. Yeah. Attorney, this that you do, it's just pretty tough wrong. And that's the art of relationships because it's difficult. Many times they don't know what they're doing, they, they'll interpret everything this way. And how you allege can be very challenging. Yeah. So you're in yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that seems to be right. Sometimes uh, it might be, you know, I used to get pushback a lot on, well, this is in particular with assessor's offices requiring me to file certain tax statements. And I would say it's not a it's not required, but that was their quote practice. Um, and so probate referee, you know, we tended to always just file things and I would follow up with a call that says, you know, this is a courtesy or whatever we're doing out of 
mainly a practice that maybe my prior firms had of just everyone does it this way. So that might be part of the reason, but you're right. If they have full authority, you're not having to get any sort of kind of blessing on, on basically anything. But if the attorney's telling you, then you can, you know, then that's what you got to do. Even if you don't agree, that's, you know, can be cumbersome. Or when I used to have, you know, even opposing counsel on the other side, and I didn't agree on what I thought was procedure, I would just get them to say, why are you, why are you telling me to do it this way? Sometimes I get a phone call back just saying that's what the partner wants. And I'm like, okay, just want a straight up answer. Okay. So it could vary from county to county. It could vary from attorney to attorney, but legally the answer is no. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be my opinion. It's not required for this, but it could be, you know, not only is that when you go into a probate case, you have to know uh, the probate law of the state and the court's local rules. So some, every judge has their own, you know, super long, thick book of their, their rules and regulations. And sometimes it might kind of be a little different. They're not going to be astronomically off kilter from the law, but they might kind of require certain things in that particular region or jurisdiction. So that could be a local thing too. I don't know. When you get the approval of a case, so it's ordered, you know, and, and the application might, you might think, well, before we need it, but you might need something else, but you don't need to sell the property in a full authority case. And, and so it's just all those things where, but yeah, I can also imagine an attorney just saying, I'd like to see it to make sure that you know, we're, we're paying for it before we get the property or sell the property. I can imagine somebody thinks it's their preference, but there's certainly no legal requirement for it. Yeah. Thank you. Winston yeah. uh, comes on, well, he's actually an advisor for a uh, travel agency. Or trips to Hawaii. So, and then if you just didn't probate listing attorney, uh, you get a free trip to Hawaii. That's part of his marketing package. Oh, you wonder if you <laughs> a great background. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, your other questions, I don't see other than having, which I'm very, uh, for, can you talk a little bit when you talk, when you set up, when people are setting up the state plans, what are the advantages? Um, co-trustees or not avoiding it and i've had do both tell me they prefer to have them equal and have prefer not to have them equal reasons uh, what, what's your best advice on when you set up a trustee uh, a trust uh, you should be when there's multiple kids that's i am uh, not a fan of co-trustees in general uh the litigator in me loves co-trustees. When I see two or more co-trustees, I know when I was a litigator, I am guaranteed business, uh, particularly if they're siblings. Uh, it becomes very arduous. So for that question, for you know three daughters to be co-trustees, no. I mean, an odd number of co-trustees is certainly better than two because two is going to hit a deadlock, and then we're going to need to go to court to undo the deadlock. Uh, almost always. I have never seen people say, not my family. My family gets along. Yes. While parents are alive, the family might get along. Parents die. Everyone is out for blood. That's just my opinion as a recovering litigator in me. 
So co-trustee is not a great idea. Uh, you also wanna be careful if you pick one child, if they're gonna lord it over the other children or if you want strife. So what do you do? Uh, you can name a professional fiduciary, the attorney that drafted the trust, usually cannot act as the successor trustee because there's a conflict of interest usually but they can nominate the attorney can nominate or give reference to a professional in the area or you can pick you know one daughter and and have a co-trustee of like a you know somebody at a bank or a cpa or an attorney or somebody to help that person right so co-trustees not a huge fan uh, odd is better than even though if you have to go the co-trustee route and also if you're picking one child over the other or others make it known while you're alive what your wishes are if you are inclined to talk about estates if you can have that conversation while you're alive with they're all sitting there maybe over the holidays and say hey this is my thought and here's why uh it will go volumes. You will save yourself, you know, the family a future litigation case with the rest of your kids trying to figure out why, you know, so and so got named and they didn't. So it's better to just give everyone the information while you're living, if you can, right? Some people are super private and they don't want to talk about it. Uh, I am, you know, respectful of that, but I do think that talking about it is helpful. So that would be my idea. Uh, oh, and the other question I just saw is um, if you sell a home and you and then you put the funds into an account, let's see, funds are in a state, put them into an account with joint tenancy right of survivorship. Yes. So that's one of the things I was saying before, if you title will control. So if you have a bank account or real estate and it's held as joint tenants, joint tenants with right of survivorship being the magic phrase that you need then that account avoids probate court but it's still considered part of the estate for estate or tax calculations but it's you know rescued from the pit of probate so if you have an account <laughs> with joint tenancy you can avoid probate that way and so that works for all accounts right all accounts with either joint tenancy or a beneficiary designation. So where is that important? Everybody's retirement account, put a beneficiary in there. And by the way, if you're divorced, make sure if you've got a court order and it's okay, you and you have that retirement account now, double check your life insurance and your retirement accounts to make sure your ex-spouse isn't still listed as your beneficiary. Because if they are and you die, they get your assets. So just that's another tip. <laughs> yeah, and the, that um, case, nobody's more upset than that the ex Scott says this wife is just I know what venom looks like that is get right, there. <laughs> right. that's exactly right um it's that's not what about beneficiaries that are not entitled under the estate process what does that mean um does that mean like if you name a beneficiary on your account and they wouldn't have been an heir otherwise for example who is yeah. an heir in California by the way your heir could be your spouse or you know forget spouse that's an easy one it's your bloodline it goes down the bloodline then goes back up and it almost makes like a tree as it branches out the different ways that we look at um heirs in california what if you're like hey i have a retirement account you're not married and you want to leave it to a friend that's fine you can name whoever you want uh, and that person will get it barring fraud and all this stuff 
Um, so any, any, any person, or it could be a charity. A lot of people that hold stock with a super low basis love to give stock to charity. Charities don't get, you know, hosed by taxes and they get a great, you know, benefit. So stock to charity with a low basis is fine. Um, I'm looking at- Hosed by taxes, does that- um, Say that? Hosed by taxes, is that a technical legal term? Absolutely. <laughs> that is straight out of the IRS code, one, section one. <laughs> you know, if you're a lot of fun, you know, I drag it out of a little personality, but uh, I feel like you're on my side to lower my taxes and my family. Right. I, I, I think, you know, I try to make death and taxes a little bit interesting. I think, you know, I my goal when I went to law school is to if I was in a lineup, no one would find me to be like the person that they would think is the tax attorney. So that's my goal. And that's who I work here now. All my team of attorneys I work with were all like super fun, according to us anyway. Um, we think it's fun. So we try to keep it light because the other thing is taxes and estate planning is scary. People are scared. So if we can make it easy to talk about, we can, you know, win the fight. One little estate, one question at a time. So yes, the law of consanguinity. That is what I was talking about. Mark, you got it right. Uh, the law of consanguinity is right. That's the bloodlines and who gets what following the bloodlines. Um, beneficiaries, if there is a trust administration and there are people that are entitled to notice, beneficiaries also get a copy of, the remainder beneficiaries get a copy of the value of the estate and they get no, they get accounting rights, but specific beneficiaries do not. So, you know, a beneficiary that's left, you know, $10,000 from Aunt Tilly or whoever, all they get to know about is they got their 10,000, but the remainder beneficiaries, which sounds like leftovers, but it's actually the big part of the estate, they get accounting rights under the law. So they do have to know what the estate is worth. And that makes sense, right? If you're gonna get 25% of an estate, you should probably know what the estate's worth so that they're not like, oh, here's your 25% and it's like $1, right? You have to know what your 25% is worth. What the expenses are, and of course, that just creates another opportunity for complaints and possible litigation is you get the accounting and all of a sudden there's accounting fees. There might be, you know, fiduciary fees. There might be legitimate expenses, might be padded expenses. You can imagine people getting a bill and realizing that came out of their share. And, uh, and that's why it's best to be transparent along the way. Um, they'll, they'll share with other beneficiaries what's going on to avoid those last minute um, changes. Right, you're right. Um, okay. Trust trusts allow for all those fights to be paid for from the trust. So actually, the only people that are winning are some of the litigation. <clears throat> and uh, Winston, you can, you have another question for us, or yeah, I I do on the uh, law. However, they say that word consequently. I never heard that before, but I like that word. Bloodline, April. That situation that's brewing. Um, probate will end up in probate when there were. Her kids, previous husband, previous marriage, their kids, there was a his kids, our kids, but there is a debate. You know, the guy raised her kids as if you know he was their real biological father. Are they out to lunch because it's not part of their kids, or where do they stand? Yeah, so if so if they have no estate and we're just going on intestate, so they have no will, 
excuse me, they have no will and we're going on intestate, then it does follow the bloodline with a pesky little exception. Children that are held out as, as their child and it's a very fought battle and there's a lot of cases on that definition of holding out without adoption, right? Without legal adoption. I'm talking just held out as a child for a period of years, including, including and up to the time of death, then that child could be considered a blood child, even though they weren't. That was one of the last litigated cases I ever had as a practicing attorney a few years ago with exactly that issue. Wasn't a blood relative, but actually fell under the consanguinity line because held out as a child and lots of interesting facts there. Um, so it's possible to get in, even if you're not a blood relative in California. Um, and by the way, if you are adopted or, a, you know, and, and adopted in, then adopted children are treated as though they were bloodline under the code. And, and the term you use, I'm sorry, the term you use held out, that I believe there's a legal term, which means treated as a child, meaning they did everything that one would expect to do with a child. They lived in the house, they provided for them food, clothing, medical care, whatever types of things you would do for, they held them out to the public right. as though they were a child, this is what the like, term means. And exactly saying, you know, hi, this is my son. This is my son. Yeah. Um, even, you know, using the last name, even though maybe it wasn't like legally their name, but putting them under that, lots of different right. facts. All these, yeah, held out is, yes, Bill, is a very, is a term of art with lots of cases behind it. But, yeah. so it's very interesting. Uh, state law as you can see there's lots of nooks and crannies people can fall into or, or hop out of thank you Winston again hey important que a, a question from one of my uh from my team members here so while i have you here uh, patricia's asking her aunt has filed uh uh a deed and this i see this all the time where they, they to avoid probate there's a deed in the two people that would be heirs uh all as joint tenants does that escape probate? And I guess what she's really saying is, the as a real estate agent, the answer is yes, right? When one tenant in um, uh, passes, uh, the others inherit. You avoid probate, but you have a different issue, which is you transfer title, and there'd be tax issues. And can you speak a little bit to that kind of do-it-yourself probate by adding on the heirs before you pass this program? Yeah. So that's. That's actually a good idea, right? Um, all is joint tenants with right of survivorship. And I know like back when I was a young, young attorney, if you didn't have the phrase with right of survivorship, bad things happened. Now it seems a little bit loose. If you just say all is joint tenants, it seems to avoid probate, but technically you would want that phrase with joint tenants uh, with right of survivorship, that would avoid probate. Uh, adding people to the title technically triggers gift tax, um, but most people, don't file a gift tax return because A, they don't know they should have, and B, if you file the gift tax return, as long as that property wasn't into the multi-millions, you're not gonna pay any tax anyway, but technically the right answer is to file a gift tax return. It does avoid probate. And as long as the original joint person, the original transfer or is adding on joint tenants, I believe it falls within the 60s series of the California Revenue and Tax Code, so I don't think you would even trip up for uh, document transfer or potentially even property tax at that point. So I think that works. I don't know. I can't, I'd have to see the deed to actually know, right? And I can't, I'm not practicing law, but I'm pretty sure in theory that works. <laughs> 
So, and though I, I will say that by almost by practice, the assessor will send out the form saying, we've reassessed you. And then you have to re, even if you do the form correctly, you end up having to go back to the assessors a second time to defend what you did. So even if it's correct legally, I would tell customers, just be prepared that they're gonna come back at you because the county default is to reassess and then make you prove that they don't need to do that. That's my common experience. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, technically, even though you used to not have to be able to have to file the PCOR, right, the preliminary change of ownership report, on all of my preliminary change of ownership reports, I would always check off and, and give them a citation to the law and, and actually put in words in a paragraph after why it's on a change in ownership and then tell the clients, by the way, expect a letter from the assessor. And by the way, don't answer it yourself, give it back to the lawyer because you know, it's worth a few, you know, cents for the assessor to send you the mail and hope that you answer incorrectly and they get you. And there's really little forgiveness. When I used to practice in trying to appeal these reassessments, it's it's not easy, right? Because they need to make up money somehow. It's very easy for them to send the letter out and it's very expensive for you to get fixed, but just be prepared for the fight. So that's right. Well, look, despite the audio issues, time flew April. Again, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, you are, I think, I think you're the most fun uh, probate and estate planning attorney I talked to. Uh, you seem to have fun with it. I sure enjoyed our time today. Um, if somebody was interested, I, I, I'm going to put on here your contact, but if somebody was interested in, again, you only work for uh, giving legal advice for clients of your firm at this point, correct? Yeah, so we only, I only actually answer questions like this on a daily basis all day long for people at EP Wealth Advisors. Um, but if you, you know, need a, need a point to an actual attorney to practice and help you, if you send me, there I am, if you send me some information, then I can always get you to a practicing attorney. I still have lots of friends and even my opposing counsel are now my friends because I give them referrals. <laughs> about it. And then if somebody's interested in putting together an estate plan, of course, you have a whole team of people to choose from to be appropriate. And so they should contact you and you put them in touch with both the right legal advice as well as hopefully the right um, estate planning um, uh, assets and investment strategies as well, correct? That's it. Yep. Happy to help get people out of the pit of probate. <laughs> Yeah, and in the pit of stock market activities and investment activities, all that fun, right? Oh, it's just been a real interesting year. COVID, and you're just not out of it, but maybe 2023 is our is our thing. But yeah, we, <laughs> as we go into the holidays, hopefully we can have something to you know look forward to and, and certainly be grateful for, especially being on this with you, Bill, and, and everyone. I appreciate the time. It's fun to talk about this stuff. Thanks so much. So I, I come across as fun. I really appreciate your time. If everybody else on this call, we this is Probate Weekly. We do it every 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern. We live stream on YouTube and Facebook. So we didn't get to put them in the chat box and I will do my best to either put them uh, to April or answer them or get somebody in our group. We have a Facebook group, Probate Experts. It's free and open to anybody. You're welcome to participate there. But on the YouTube, feel free to ask questions. If you like, subscribe to the regularly love to add. Again, um, April, I'm back everybody. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, everyone. Have a good rest of your day.